invite you to turn in the Word of God to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the epistle of Paul to the second epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, and the third chapter, please. It's amazing to see Dr. Matsko sitting with us. Praise the Lord for answer prayer there. Not expecting that. My hope is to finish off this epistle next Lord's Day. I know it's communion, but we, I want to finish it off because I'm off for a number of Sundays after that. I'll not be preaching here, so when I get back, I want to continue with something else. So I am um, this morning looking with you at verse 6 through 15. It is with one continuous thought and theme, and I trust that the Lord will give help, certainly the largest chunk that we have endeavored to preach through this epistle, but I trust the Lord will give the help that is necessary. We'll commence again at verse 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. For those who are visiting, we've been going through this epistle. We have previously gone through the first epistle, and now we're almost at the close of this second epistle to the Thessalonians. So let us read from verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. The Lord is faithful. It shall establish you and keep you from evil. We have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, For we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies." Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Amen. We'll end at verse 15, which will be the close of our consideration here this morning. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. You need a word from the Lord, just as I do, and we trust that God will be pleased to meet that need by the ministry of His Spirit in our midst this morning. 
Oh God, we have been challenged to surrender our lives, to place ourselves at Thy disposal, to take our life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee, to take our moments and our days and let them flow in ceaseless praise. We can't do this in our own strength, Lord. We can barely, five minutes after we resolve to follow Thee, follow through in our resolution. So we pray this morning that Thy Word will quicken by the Spirit. It will teach and instruct and help our hearts to imbibe Thy truth, and then the Spirit will help us also to carry it out. Give power then in the preaching of the Word, in the hearing and receiving of the Word. And may signs follow the preaching of the Word to the glory and praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. Extend Thy kingdom, Lord. Oh, please don't leave us to the be the plaything of the devil, where he comes and steals away every seed and it never seems to find good ground. Oh God, prosperous. Let the word, as Paul desired for prayer here, let the word run. Let it have free course and be glorified. Hear then this our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most comforting aspects of the New Testament is the record that it gives of the severe sins and heresies that needed to be dealt with in churches that were not planted by mere seminary graduates, but by the apostles themselves. These mighty men that had far more clarity in the truth than any seminary graduate, that planted churches that saw the work established, souls saved, and elders raised up, they struggled to maintain the church in the way that they had instructed. There was this ongoing battle for truth that took place in every congregation. Take, for example, the church at Corinth, which, to bear in mind, the Apostle Paul spent some 18 months there, so it wasn't an insignificant period of time. It wasn't like he just drifted in, spent a few weeks, planted a church, and ran off. He was there for a long time laboring in the truth, and yet you find a deep schismatic spirit taking fellow church members to court, sexual immorality, incestuous relationships, rejecting the apostolic teaching on head covering, marginalizing poor Christians when celebrating the Lord's Supper, denying the bodily resurrection of believers, and so on. This is serious business. And that's why I say it's of great encouragement to read about it. Though well taught by the apostles, the thought that the New Testament church is so pure that it may exist without serious problems is a pipe dream. It's a fantasy. It doesn't exist. It didn't exist in the first century, and as no doubt any of us who've been on the road long enough are aware, it doesn't exist now either. And yet the Thessalonian church was one of those churches that Paul was most happy about, most joyful about what had occurred there. It was one of those happy successes. It was thriving in gospel outreach, and I'll not go back to prove that point. It was growing in godliness, and again, I'll not go back to prove that either. But it was not without its issues. One of those issues, of course, related to the Lord's return. Details concerning it, the timing of it, is addressed in both epistles, so it was addressed once, and problems 
persist and it has to be addressed again. And another serious issue resolved around certain church members refusing to work, also addressed in both epistles, showing another area of persistent sin. Persistent sin. Paul says, listen, here's the right way of living here, or here's the truth about this matter. The epistle is read, instruction is given, and they don't heed it. They continue on not heeding it. The report goes back to the apostle. There's still a problem here. In fact, perhaps the problem has multiplied and developed. Arguments have been given in response to what he's presented. And so he has to flesh out, as is the case in the second epistle, on both these issues. In relation to the Lord's turn, he has to flesh it out a little more. And in relation to the matter of work, he has to deal more extensively and use more severe language to try and straighten out the problem. Men persist in sin. They do not always manifest a teachable spirit, even those that are in the church. While we will deal with this passage in relation to the sin that was there, or I may say sins, as you will find out in just a moment, what Paul gives us here isn't just dealing with the problem of men unwilling to work. In fact, it's a wonderful teaching on general disorderliness in the church, how to address believers that are not walking according to the conduct expected from the Word, the conduct taught from a healthy pulpit, and the expectation of a genuine Christian community. The word disorderly is found three times, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 11. It's in the form of an adverb in verses 6 and 11, and a verb in verse 7. The sense of it, you can see it there, every brother that walketh disorderly, verse 6, Paul says that we didn't, uh, we were not disorderly, basically in verse 7, and then in verse 11, we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly working not at all. And the sense is, they're like soldiers out of rank. They're all disciplined and taught and instructed to a certain course of rank and file, and there's one or a number that are out of step, and it's plain to be seen. Another sense of the meaning is that they are going against or deviating from the prescribed order or rule. And it affects others. It's not something that can be isolated to them personally. It is having an impact upon the entire body of people. And so, rather than just dealing with the whole aspect of work, which is the primary problem here, I've entitled my message, Dealing with Disorderly Church Members. Dealing with Disorderly Church Members, because really that's what the Apostle gives us here in these verses. Note with me, first of all, the particular sins, the particular sins. And the first of them is, of course, idleness. Idleness. And a number of verses, of course, express that there is this problem of idleness. And we can say a number of things about the individuals that Paul has in mind. First, they could work 
and refused to. Verse 10, even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, that is, they, they refuse to work. It's not, it's not about people who do not have the ability to work. It's not dealing with that. But there are people who could work, but they refuse to work. He says, we've already instructed you on this matter. These people should not even eat. So they could work and refuse to. Secondly, they needed to work and refuse to. Another way in which you can avoid work is the fact you don't need to. Some of you have worked for 40 years, and you have put yourself in a position where you can come to a point of retirement. It's not entirely unbiblical. Of course, there should be no point where we just kind of give up labor altogether, and we put our feet up, and we have no interest in doing anything productive. I don't think that honors the Lord, but there certainly is, even scripturally, and we could argue this from the Levitical priesthood, there's a time for retirement when the body is unable to do what it once did, and there's a necessary uh, stage of moving into uh, less pressurized work and environment. But that's not the case for these people. They needed to work, and they refused to. Verse 12 tells us, Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Of course, the problem here was they were eating other people's bread. This underlines the fact that they needed to work. They were not in a position where they could simply say to themselves, I want to give up work, and I have enough in reserve to keep me going for the rest of my days and provide for my wife and children or whatever. They weren't in that position. They had to work. They, they, it was imperative that they would work because they were unable to purchase for themselves the basic necessities of life. And so this is why it's most pressing. They are leaning into the graces of other people. They are depending upon others who are working hard enough as it is just to provide for themselves. And now they're having to provide for others that could work but won't. They're not interested in working. So this is greatly upsetting. The question, of course, arises, why? Why? Well, again, this matter is addressed in the first epistle, and it seems certainly in the first epistle that it's connected with the teaching about the Lord's return. And their views of the Lord's return and the sense of imminence right in that present first century context that the Lord was about to come made them think to themselves, we don't have to work anymore. There's no point in giving ourselves to that. The Lord's about to come back. Why would you waste your time working for that which you won't be able to enjoy the reward of? Because the Lord's going to come back and it will be irrelevant at that point. Well, of course, that is why the matter gets addressed But what's interesting as I looked at this passage is that it's not so tied into the Lord's return here. Now, he has dealt with it in chapter 2. You know that. And the matter has been expounded in great detail, but he doesn't create this juxtaposition where he says, now now here's the the fruit of your bad teaching or your bad uh, ideas and doctrine about the Lord's return, and, and I'm going to address that now as well. There doesn't seem to be this connection That doesn't mean to say that it's not the reason why. I'm just pointing that out to you. But whatever was the underlying reason, which probably was related to the Lord's return, they're acting like work. Like if you continue to work right up to the point of the Lord's return, like you're doing something wrong. Like there's something undignified about labor. But this is not the case at all. 
work was instituted in a world even before there was sin. Never forget that. Work isn't the product of, of the fact that there's now this, this hardship of, of in the world and now we have to work before we didn't have to work and everything was just there. The trees provided fruit. Adam just kind of lay in a hammock, you know, 18 hours of the day and just spent the other hours plucking fruit that was there for him. That, well, that, wasn't, that was not the pre-fall world. Genesis 2.15 tells us the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. He's there to labor. I've dealt with that verse on previous occasions, so I'll not elaborate anymore. But basically, gainful employment is a dignified use of time. Listen, get that into your heart, especially young people. Gainful employment is a dignified use of time. You do not have to lament hours spent in labor to provide. Now, obviously, we can misjudge how much time needs to be allotted and sacrifice other things that are important to the end that it has destructive influences. But in and of itself, gainful employment is exalted right in the first chapters of Genesis. And I might say, and I can't elaborate on this too much, but when you think of work and you think about the dignified place that God gives it in Genesis, is it not true that when we come to our Lord Jesus Christ, that in one sense the Son of God elevates work and makes it even more dignified? What did he come to do? Did he come to sit around and do nothing? He came to work. His whole life was one of work. His ministry was one of work. And in the curse, of course, Adam is told that now in the sweat of your brow you will eat bread. There's going to be difficulty and toil. Well, think of the toil of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Adam, Adam now, he is, he is kicked out of the garden. He is removed from the garden. And now he has to sweat and labor to a greater extent just to provide for himself and for his posterity. And Christ goes into a garden to sweat there under the curse sweating to the degree that few men have ever experienced in the entire history of humanity, sweating blood. My understanding of that medical condition is extremely rare, and it is a sign that death is imminent. He takes work and he elevates it. Adam was to work to provide bread for his wife and family. Christ works to give the bread of life himself to the entire family of God's people, to give to them not partial life and temporary life, but eternal life that will endure throughout eternity for all of the future ahead of us in God's heaven and on this remade earth that will be to come. And you ponder on that, and I'm not going to say any more, but you, you muse on the work of Christ and our salvation, 
that it elevates work. When you're out there laboring and struggling, think, think of the wonderful fact you do not have to work for your own salvation. Now you just have to focus on this one area. But you can still know something of the hardship. A little tiny insight into what Christ had to give himself for, working for our salvation. You can muse on that yourself a little more. But of course, like other sins, work, some people, let's say, are, are predisposed to struggle a little more than others. Some are more predisposed to be angry. Some are more predisposed to fornication. Some are more predisposed to lies. It would appear to me that there are certain predispositions that exist in certain people, and it would be the case with work as well. Some struggle to have the will to labor. And this is manifesting itself in this congregation. And so there's idleness. This idleness is a form of disorderly conduct. It is not good. It is not commendable. And the language could not be more strong. Again, verse 10, even when we were with you. So this, this precedes the first epistle. Paul goes into an area and he knows what men are like. He, he's aware of the sins of his age. And he doesn't just say, here's the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, trust in him for salvation, and then whoo, disappear. <laughs> he knows that there are various issues in every community. And one of those issues that would be indiscriminate across every community is there are going to be people in every single city and village that don't want to work. And so he would go in and he would say, perhaps he may observe the problem or maybe he just assumes because he knows what men are like. So even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Strong language. I told you this. Read it again. A man who has the capability of working and needs to work because he has not the supplies to lean into or upon, if that man refuses to work, if he has no will to work, no desire to work, and his opportunity to work, that man should starve. I mean, could it be more blunt? So this is a great sin. But there's more than just idleness that is part of the sin that is going on here. There's also meddling. Verse 11, we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. If you were to look at the Greek here, you would find that the root of the word in busybody, has, or is rather, the Greek word for work. Working not at all, but are working. But they're working, and because of the compound, the nature of the word, you can see the sense of it, what here it is teaching us. They are working, but it's not at gainful employment. It's not in providing for them and their family. It's working in another area and realm altogether. So they are working because men seldom just sit and do nothing. 
But they have assigned for themselves work that was neither gainful nor in their jurisdiction. They're going around talking. I don't know what they were saying. Maybe they were spreading their false ideas about the Lord's return to justify the reason why they were not working. Whatever the case is, they're they're speaking in a way that was unhelpful and causing problems in the congregation. They're meddling. Rather than being busy about the work of providing, busy about the practical things that they have to give themselves to for the general needs of their family, rather than keeping themselves busy with occupations that honor God, they're busy destroying the people of God. Wrecking havoc in the harmony of the church. Meddling. So that's the other sin. I could say more there, but I need to move on. The other sin that I note here is that of discouragement. Verse 13, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Why, why does Paul have to say that? Why? Be not weary in well-doing. Because everyone has a limit. And they struggle when they get to that limit. In this context, you have this conflict that is going on in the minds of of good Christians in the church. They want to do what is right. They want to honor the Lord. And they go and they work every day. They give themselves to the responsibilities. They are to love their brothers. They are to love Christians. But some of these Christians keep coming to them and they're starving and they have this practical need and again and again and again and again. And maybe some in the congregation have said, here, look, I have a job for you. <laughs> I can... I could utilize you here, but they don't want the job. And then they have this ongoing conflict because, well, they're going, they're going to starve if we don't feed them, but, but, but they won't work. And so they have this conflict. What about his wife? What about his children? What are we to do? And so the whole thing, as, as, it, as it grinds on, weeks go by, the same problem. And of course, Paul then, he puts it in, and they're all seeing that little note in 1 Thessalonians 4.11 that's addressing the problem. And no doubt thinking to themselves, just like you have done in the past, we know we shouldn't do this, but we can't help it sometimes. <laughs> when you hear something, you think, that's perfect for them. You've all been there. We've all done it. You know someone's circumstances and a certain thing gets preached or said and you think, oh, I hope they were listening. Well, that's what happened. There it is. Chapter 4, verse 11. We'll not turn to it, but there it is. It's addressed. Very pointed, very, very uh, straightforward. And you can just see the congregation. Oh, I hope, I hope, I hope they, they hear that. But they don't. They don't. And they're left in this further conundrum. What are we to do? We, we have to keep helping them. Maybe, maybe some are saying, you know, I, I, I just can't, I can't afford this. Our, our savings are being drained. But, but, but they're brothers and they're, they're, they'll starve if we don't. And you can, you can just see it grinding on. And they get to the point where they start to withdraw from the congregation. The only way is to withdraw. 
to, they're getting weary of it. They're getting weary of the context, of the circumstances. They're, they're trying to protect themselves. And the only way to protect themselves is to kind of shut off the channels of communication and fellowship, withdraw, get less involved in the work, apply themselves less in the, the various needs of the congregation. That's the only way to survive. They're getting weary. And Paul has a word for them. Ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Yes, because even if you're being taken advantage of, you're doing well. And he's endeavoring to correct it and, of course, gives them an out. I mean, this whole passage will deal with how to deal with it, which we'll get to in just a moment. He is protecting them. He does protect them here. He gives them plain instruction. In fact, the vast bulk of this portion, verse 6 through 15, is addressed not to those who are causing the problem, but to those who are suffering under the problem that they're creating. He is speaking to the do-gooders. He's speaking to the honorable believers, saying, here's, here's how to deal with it. And verse 13 is just further exhortation to them. Ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Don't, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart because the body of Christ isn't what it needs to be. Don't lose heart because not everyone is the Christian that they claim to be. Don't lose heart because there are problems in the body of Christ. Do not lose heart when it becomes hard to even associate with some believers. Ah, we've all needed to hear that. You know, when I think of this context, I can never, every single time, when I think of the weariness of sometimes being in the body and the, hard, the hardships and difficulties and the patience that's needed with one another and in certain contexts that may be particularly difficult for you or me in, a, in various scenarios, and you're tempted to get weary, and my mind always, because I've been here on a number of occasions, my mind always goes back to Caleb and Joshua. I think if anyone, if anyone could have justified becoming weary, it was them. Forty years, four decades of trundling along because of what other believers what the rest of the body had brought them to. But they wholly followed the Lord, and they were honored for it. They were honored for their stickability, for the resolve. So don't grow weary. Be like Caleb. Be like Joshua. Wholly follow the Lord. So these are the three sins you see here, the particular sins, idleness, meddling, and discouragement. But not only the particular sins, let's think also of the apostolic standard the apostolic standard. Paul is teaching here. He is an apostle. He has given them a standard that, first of all, was taught by instruction. Look at verse 6. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. This is him harking back to what had been taught so we've already taught this. We've already instructed in this matter. 
Verse 14 as well. If any man obey not our word by this epistle. So we've instructed, we've laid the tradition, not a bad word, by the way, not in this context. It's not about, it is a certain rule, certain conduct, certain proper teaching that came from the apostles honoring the Lord. We gave it, we taught it, it's consistent with the Old Testament Scriptures. We laid it before you. And now they're writing this epistle, Paul's writing this epistle, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and so on. So they taught by instruction. Paul does this. He teaches by instruction. He's a preacher. That's what preachers do. And part of his instruction, of course, was not just to those that were in sin, but as I've noted already, the vast bulk of these verses are actually addressed to those that aren't in the sin. And remember what he said about them in verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. With confidence. And that, of course, was both to those who were walking disorderly, but perhaps even more to the point to those that were not walking disorderly, to the genuine believers that were endeavoring to walk honestly in that congregation. And Paul is telling them, look, you need to listen now to what I am saying. He had often taught by ways of instruction. He continues to do so. And of course, the authority in which he does this is not his own it is in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 6, and elsewhere in the passage as well. Verse 12, and exhort you by our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is pulling his authority. This is the authority of Christ. It's not just me. I'm teaching in the name of Christ. So they taught by instruction, but they also taught by example. And perhaps this is more pertinent here. Because verse 7 through 9 details this, so he takes time to explain this fact that I didn't just say it. I didn't just teach by word. I give the example for you as well. So look carefully at verse 7. For yourselves know, remember this, you know this, yourselves know how you ought to follow us. We told you about that. Go back to 1 Corinthians 11, you see, be imitators of me. He had exhorted that. He was encouraging them to follow, not just listen to what I'm saying, follow what I do. And what did he do? For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. So what you're doing now, you didn't get from us. That's what he's saying. You did not get it from us. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught. We didn't walk into the city and take from you what we didn't earn but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Now, here he lays down what is well known about the Apostle Paul, and that is the fact that he did not ask for assent from basically anyone, at least in relation to himself, for the vast bulk of his ministry. He wasn't interested. And part of this, of course, was to impress further upon a dysfunctional community, wherever he went, to impress upon them, first of all, I'm not after your money. I'm not interested in that. And second of all, I want to be an example to you practically of what it means to work. Because no doubt in many of those areas, it was the same problem as we have today. It's not a new problem. People don't want to work. They want to make it as easy as possible 
for themselves. And so this was a way of teaching them, of showing them. So they wrought with labor and travail night and day. So you can never say that we depended on you for financial help. We provided for ourselves. And verse 9, he underscores again another apostolic teaching, another biblical teaching, just reminding them, not because we have not power or rather authority. It's not because we didn't have the authority to do that. We did. We could have asked. We could have asked for support. This is very clearly taught. I can't take time to turn to it, but 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14, even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. The Lord ordained it. The Lord commanded that the man who preaches the word, labors in the word and in doctrine, ought then to be supported by those that he labors among. But rather than exercise that liberty, which of course is what true Christian liberty is, I can do this, but I am deciding not to for some other gain or benefit for the body, he decides, I'm not going to do that. But he reminds them, basically we could, we have the authority, but instead we want it to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. That is, work with your hands. Work with your hands. Work is dignified. Give yourself to it. So, <clears throat> we see a number of things. That is, as I've already noted, when Paul planted this church, listen now, when Paul planted this church, he instructed them in two ways. By word and by conduct. He exemplified his teaching at all times. Not just in his manner and demeanor whereby he would exhibit, for example, joy and suffering. He taught them that too. Commitment to the truth, that certainly was what he exemplified. Prayerfulness, that was on display all of the time. But also in areas like work. Now, work has changed a lot over the centuries. There's no doubt that about that. I mean, I'm not going to get into a history of work and the changes, especially over the last 200 years or so. But gainful employment still amounts to either providing goods or services by and large. And therefore, the underlying biblical theology of work remains the same as well. There are lots of changes, but the underlying aspect of it hasn't really changed all that much. You're either providing goods for people that you sell for gain, or you're providing a service that they need, which they also will pay you for, which you can use in that gain to make ends meet. But in spite of this instruction given by word and by conduct, some members of this church utterly rejected it. They ignored it. I mean, it's right there. He's saying, here's what I teach. That's what he said. Verse 10, even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. So I said it. He exemplified it. And yet there were people there that wouldn't hear it. I mean, they're, they're listening to Paul. and They're in the church now. And they, these, are people, these are people that are prepared to pay the price to identify with the followers of Christ. 
And you go back to Acts 17 and see what was going on there. Things were not easy. There was real persecution in that city. So these are people who have made a judgment call. I want to identify with the followers of Christ. I'm willing to suffer with the followers of Christ. But I disagree on this issue that Paul teaches. It's very strange, but not unusual at all. That people can come the whole way, they can embrace the gospel, they can see what it calls them to, they can even be prepared to sacrifice for it and to maybe even pay with their own life, perhaps. Lose friends over it, and yet in the face of plain teaching taught to them from the Scriptures, by example, by someone like Paul, and they say, I disagree. Well, of course, people have the right or the option to disagree, but they need to be able to substantiate it. So here's these, are these church members. They are ignoring Paul. He leaves the city, and they don't hear what he has said. So Paul hears about this. He writes his first epistle. He addresses it. But word comes back before writing the second epistle that they haven't changed, at least some of them. And so writing the second letter, Paul hears they're still not working. They're refusing to correct their ways, even after addressing it again in a letter. And so this amounts to what the passage we're looking at, verses 6 through 15, this is Paul's third effort. While he was there, the first epistle, now the second epistle. Oh, as I say, this is encouraging. This is encouraging. You might not think it's encouraging, but it is. Because I think there are times where you have to say something to people and they don't hear me. And I think, well, they didn't hear Paul either. And he had a far greater intellect and powers of persuasion and fullness of the Holy Ghost than I will ever know. And they still didn't hear him. Yes, just like our Lord Jesus. Filled with the Spirit without measure. Do people hear Him? So, so here you have it then. Paul dealing with this matter. That brings us in thirdly. Not only have we seen the particular sins in the apostolic standard, but we have the godly solution. The godly solution. There are a number of points here I want to deal with, but when you read these verses, if you have been paying attention, you'll know this already. What he recommends is not easy. It's not. It's not easy to implement. He is recommending discipline. And discipline is enjoyable for no one. Your parents know it. No parent delights in discipline. And actually, as the children get older, it becomes even more difficult 
They get to a certain stage where you start second-guessing yourself. Can I even discipline at this point? Or what does discipline look like? Oh, I'll tell you, it's not easy. You get an older child, 18, 19, 20, in the home. Start saying, I don't want to go to church. What do you do? It is not easy. In the godly solution that this passage gives to us, dealing with the disorderly, first we have further instruction from the apostle. Further instruction from the apostle. The vast majority of the verses, as I've said to you, are addressed to the obedient, not the disorderly. But in verse 12, he expresses a challenge to the disorderly who may hear what he is saying. Now them that are such we command, these are the busybodies who won't work, them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Stop wagging your tongue and work. It's plain. In one sense, you read it and you think, what's different about it? Nothing really. He's already given this exhortation. He's already given this command. Sometimes there are no other ways of presenting the case. All you can do is say the same thing again and hope and pray that God uses that exhortation to cause a shift in their hearts. So there's further instruction from the apostle directly to them. But here's where it gets difficult. There's united commitment from the community. There must be united commitment from the community. Look at verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle. So here's the thing. The epistle is sent. The epistle is read. And everyone's hearing. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle. Note that man. Note him. Take knowledge of them. Don't overlook them. Don't ignore them. Note them. Not only note them, withdraw from them. Verse 6. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you see that as he exhorts he hears what he's doing. He pulls in the, the authority of Christ both as he addresses the disorderly, just as he addresses the obedient. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Withdraw. 
Again, verse 14, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Easy to do? By no means. This is part of church discipline. Now, the steps of church discipline are not always uniform. Turn for a moment just, just to re- refresh your mind. Matthew 18. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 15. I can't expound all of this, but you'll you see some steps here that may be of help to you. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Treat him as an unbeliever. Now this gives the usual process. Matthew 18 should be followed, if at all possible, at every time. Anytime there's a problem, right? Going back to the initial problem where someone sins against you and you feel that offense, how do you address it? You go here, you follow the steps. Now there are occasions when these steps are not to be followed. The sin in 1 Corinthians 5 leaps over, all steps go straight to excommunication. There's, there are no steps except go straight to the end. It is so public, it is so grievous, it is so horrendous, Paul says you have to go straight to the final point. And pray to God that that is used by the Spirit to work repentance in the heart. So 1 Corinthians 5, deliver such a one. This is the incestuous relationship. Deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Take them out of the body. Remove them pronounce them. You have to be an unbeliever. We see you as an unbeliever as much as we can judge you're an unbeliever because even, even what you're doing, those that don't profess Christ would never do. But some sins, while grievous, are less so. And in our passage, Paul is still treating these members as brothers. Verse 6, if you go back to our passage. Withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. Verse 14. Note that man and have no company with him that he, if any man obey not this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So, he's still viewing them as brothers. This means that the passage that we're dealing with brings us to the step just before excommunication. If you were to follow the process, generally speaking, and again, there can be some deviation here depending on circumstances, but the general general Matthew 18 approach to a disorderly brother is there's personal admonition. You go there, you tell them the issue. There's then admonition from some 
other group, two or three witnesses, sometimes that may be taken straight to the elders, to the session of the church, and they therefore give an exercise of admonition based on the evidence that is put before them. If there is no repentance at that point, then there may be withholding duties and or communion. They're not able to participate. The fourth, then, is the public and corporate admonishment. It's when, because of the nature of it and what's going on, now the congregation need to know how to respond. And that's what Paul's dealing with. Paul is saying here, he is saying here, at this point, when all is said and done, we aren't at the stage where we want to excommunicate these. We still see them as brothers. But now we need the public admonition of the entire body. And it scares the life out of any of us to think that we may get to that point with any individual in the congregation. Here you have individuals where they are in public contradiction of the truth. They persist in it without repentance. And now because they will not receive private admonition, they will not receive admonition from the oversight of the church, they will not receive the admonition of no longer being allowed to take communion or being taken from their duties because of all of that, now the entire congregation is called to be involved. And I'll tell you, it requires extreme maturity from the congregation to understand what it means when God, by His Spirit, through His servant Paul, says, withdraw. Withdraw. Have no company. What does it mean to have no company? Matthew Henry says, we must avoid familiar converse and society with such for two reasons. Namely, that we may not learn his evil ways, for he who falls vain and idle persons and keeps company with such is in danger of becoming like them. Another reason is for the shaming and so the reforming of those that offend that while that when idle and disorderly persons see how their loose practices are disliked by all wise and good people, they may be ashamed of them and walk more orderly, end quote. So should such an occasion ever arise here, what does it mean? I was thinking about this. I mean, trying to get into your heads. Does that mean that I can't work with them? That if I'm employed in the same place, I have to leave that place of employment? No. Doesn't, doesn't mean that. Does that mean if I live in their neighborhood and the mailman brings their meal to my door that I can't go to their door and hand their meal to them? No, it doesn't mean that. It is, as Matthew Henry says, avoiding familiar converse and society with such. Acting as if everything's normal. Serving with them, praying with them, having them over in your home for fellowship, as if there's no problem. John Gill says that in having no company, it means, quote, as little as can be in common and civil conversation, lest he should take encouragement from thence to continue in his sin. This is so difficult. So heavy. What do you think the disorderly were doing behind the scenes in this church? I mean, Paul's spoken it and then leaves and they continue on. And some brothers say, 
but, but Paul taught this. And then they say, ah, but this. And then Paul writes a letter and it addresses them pointedly. What do you think is going on? There has to be justification for it. There has to be some kind of justification behind the scenes. Maybe even courting sympathy, because they'd have to court sympathy, wouldn't they? They're getting to the point they can't put food on the table. So they have to use language to court sympathy from other church members, lay the blame of sin elsewhere, assassinate the character of anyone who might call them to account. That's what goes on. So there are these times, and I hope, I pray that we never have to have such an occasion as this, but it happened in the first century. Why not now? Of course, if there is such instruction that is ever given, there has to be, such discipline has to be warranted from Scripture. Exercise in private as much as possible and always, always the purpose of restoration. That's the idea that he may be ashamed. He feels the weight of his wrongdoing and is pulled back in repentance into the body and fellowship. And you're called to admonish. Verse 15. This is, this is what's hard. And we're almost done. Verse 15. Count him not as an enemy. At this point, this isn't 1 Corinthians 5. He's not excommunicated. Count him not as an enemy. Admonish him as a brother. What does it mean to admonish? As put in mind. Bring to the remembrance. The training and instruction that had already been given, you remind them of it. You tell them their error. And of course, you're to be totally impartial towards them. Verse 6. Withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly. Yes. Doesn't matter who it is. This is where this is where you learn whether we fear God or man. Our Lord Jesus said that of the religious leaders of his day. They could not believe that receive honor one of another. They were unable to believe in his words what he was saying because they prioritized the honor of other men. He says, you, you cannot believe that receive honor one of another. It's impossible. And you'll find it hard to believe Christ sufficiently to follow through on what this says with meekness and fear in your heart because you will fear man more than you fear the Lord. That's the danger. That's a danger for us all. When a brother is out of step with the community, he needs to be marked, withdrawn from, have no company with. It's right there. So, in conclusion, here's the frightful thing. We all have disorderly areas of our lives. This is about work. 
As I say, I'm taking it generally as instruction to those that walk disorderly, because really, he's applying a general, general principles to a particular problem, and it can apply across the board. And we all have disorderly areas of our lives. How do we maintain the humility to hear? Because what's the difference? What's the difference between the obedient and the disobedient? The one that honors and the one that walks disorderly. What's the difference? It is, it is hearing. It is hearing. It is the evangelical ear. It is that ear that is circumcised by the work of the Spirit of God that hears the truth and must obey. It is the activity of the Spirit of God that makes us willing in the day of His power. It's an outworking of effectual calling when the Spirit makes us willing, causes us to hear what previously we could not hear. And it's an ongoing grace and work of the Spirit that we must have in all of our lives if we are to continue to hear every command of Scripture. What is worse than Christians withdrawing from you because of your sin? What's worse? It's an awful, it's an awful place to get to, isn't it? Where Christians are rightly called upon to withdraw from you because of your persistence in sin. What is worse than that? It is the fact that the Lord withdraws from such. That's why they can't hear. They can't hear it because the Lord's already withdrawn. There isn't that spirit working, enabling them to hear and to see the destruction of their ways. They are like Samson. They wake up every morning and wish not that the Lord has departed. They are like Israel. You read Hosea's prophecy. You see the Lord's language there, speaking of his withdrawal. You read the letter to the Laodicean church. Christ had withdrawn. He was outside. They couldn't even hear him knock. They couldn't hear it. Wouldn't even answer the door. May the Lord spare us. Keep us all very humble. Walking in his ways. Let's bow together in prayer.
Dear Christian, if you feel the Lord has withdrawn from you somewhat today, beg, beg the return of his presence. You never know when he may leave you to the degree that you cannot hear or receive instruction and admonition. I fear this in my own heart. Lest having preached to others, I myself be a castaway. Gracious God, ply up the fallow ground, we plead with Thee. Give a tenderness in this congregation to receive with meekness the engrafted word. Blessed Spirit, work in all of our lives. For if we are not teachable, we will be lost. Yes, is this not why they gnash their teeth in hell itself, still under the wrath of God, men persist, unteachable, unwilling to acknowledge the truth. Gracious God, deliver us from such, we pray. Unite our hearts to fear thy name. Give us holy desires. Give us such a fear of God that we will love thy word above all companions. Forgive all our sins, wash us. Give us a blessed afternoon and bring us back into thy house. And we plead again now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.